You did receive uh, the book, I think, or did you? I did. I read the whole thing. Yeah, oh, wonderful. Yeah, no, your your book was amazing. Multi-level marketing is this multi-headed monster, you know, and it is approached by various disciplines. Um, and I've been involved in all of them at one time or another, you know, are the products viable? Is there retail sales? Um, does anybody make money? Is it legal? And so on. And um, as I as I approached it and looked at these all of these subjects, file folders that I've organized all this in, it came back to me kind of uh, a theme that I always uh, knew that each time I would talk with someone. I would realize I would come up against this reality so basic, it was so obvious in a way it became invisible, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is what is multi-level marketing? What is it? It's a phenomenon, it's global. When did it start? And, and, uh, and how, do you, how do you, what do you call it? Much of the commentary has been about what it's not, you know? It's not direct selling. People really can't make money selling these products. Not an income opportunity <clears throat> because the data is clear, less than a percent make any money in a year. And over multiple years, it becomes a percent of 1%. So th this is not qualified as an opportunity. Okay, well then what is it? You know, and could it even still be called a business? If it's not a business, what do you name it? And that became sort of the guiding uh, <clears throat> theme, you might say, the question that I wanted to stay close to as I tracked its history, as its, its design, how it actually works, the pay plan, um, and then the political side of it, the legal and political side of it, it's, it's history through the courts, it's political influence buying, which is extremely extensive. And finally, this larger question that people have been confronting, is this a cult? And if it is a cult, what do you call that? What is it? What kind of cult? Right. So there was this basic question that media often, particularly news journalists, skip right over and don't even realize that they have skipped over. And they presume it's a business, presume it's direct selling, presume that it's an income opportunity. They think of people, quote, joining it or uh, pursuing it like you would a career or a real job and so on. And um, you know, breaking away from that and getting back to the basic question, they almost don't have time to do that. And what I discovered too, and I never, you know, described this in the book, if you take them back to the fundamentals and remind them that they're operating on unexamined premises, <clears throat> that even with a cursory, care, more careful look, um, 
explodes those premises, they realize they can't print what's, what's actually there. <clears throat> Their story is kind of based on this fairy tale. And if you take the fairy tale away and get to the truth, it raises all kinds of disturbing, almost unprintable uh, realities. That's right. Yeah. Well, it's in it's such a deep well. It's such a deep mine to go down um, because there is so many there are so many different factors or elements to the picture. And I'm glad that you mentioned, you know, it's almost a point of first principles in a way, because there is this assumption made on the part of almost everyone who is presented with this. And I'd say, and it is a fallacy. I mean, it's it's that it's that bias we have of the first time we hear about something, that tends to be how we will continue to frame it in our mind and how we will think about it, even if we're told later, it's actually not that. It's something different. You still have this this kind of basic fundamental idea of what this thing is, and you can't help cognitively but frame everything you hear and see about that thing later against that first idea that you had. And in this yeah. case, I believe what we have is a misnomer where, or, or you know, how propaganda, because these things are presented as quote unquote business opportunities. And that immediately sets in your mind, it's a business. And it's kind of clubby. It's kind of a membership sort of, you know, groupy, clubby kind of thing. So it, it involves, you know, social networking too. But that business term had, hits right away. And so you're instantly framing everything against that idea and you categorize it accordingly. But that is the very first lie yes. connected with this whole thing. Yes. And, and it's, uh, this is, uh, as you said, first principle, fundamental, but it's also extremely intentional. This didn't happen by accident. This is not just a, a misapprehension of people or we kind of got it wrong, popular misconception. This was very carefully cultivated. It was um, with very specialized language. So the language of business has been used here. That's the basic language of it. And that language has been driven into the market as a disguise for what is going on behind it um, with great intention and, and with a high degree of sophistication. Uh, word smiths are at work here. Very high paid PR companies are used uh, there is a national organization uh, with an office on K Street that is kind of the Ministry of Truth for multi-level marketing. And, 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 and what is that office? Who are those? That people? is the Direct Selling Association, DSA. And DSA um, has gone through several name changes. It used to be the trade organization of actual direct selling companies, companies Who's, who's, uh, that actually went out and called on homes, sewing machine companies, vacuum cleaner companies, cosmetic companies, and so on. And there were many of them. Uh, Fuller Brush Company. Um, I was interviewed by a young journalist who said, I, what, what is Fuller Brush? 
And uh, well, anybody my age or maybe somewhat younger, this is an iconic company, an iconic thing of salespeople that would come to your home, talk to your mother, this would be from my point of view, uh, and come in the house, a man, and the mother was, you know, by herself in the house, the guy would come in with a briefcase or a suitcase full of goods, catalog and so on. And everything stopped for the Fuller Brush man to, and it was always a man too, and uh, <clears throat> sold these goods and you took orders. And in the book, I do discuss this and because there was actually quite a good article written a long time ago about the actual number of homes a Fuller Brush man had to call on, what was the average amount they earned per sale. It, it was a grueling, tough work, but such a thing existed. And they had a trade association, but that organization was, um, uh, over time, these kinds of businesses faded away. People weren't at home, right? You didn't need them. All these things were in stores. Later, they could be ordered online or in catalogs with mail order, now online. And so absolutely no need. And no, nor would anyone allow a salesperson to come knocking at your door, a stranger into the house. Not many people are at home to begin with. They're at work themselves and so on. The model is completely gone. Yet that organization was sort of the shell of it, was taken over by this new thing called multi-level marketing companies characterized by companies like Amway, New Skin, Herbalife, and so on. That's right. And they adopted, they adopted that whole identity. They sort of stole uh, the identity, yeah, an original identity theft. And so they took on the entire demeanor of direct selling, even though, again, the idea that you would sell something going door to door is, is an absurdity today. And it isn't totally gone away. There are a few things, home improvement products, you know, um, uh, that, uh, I, I mean, home, yeah, home improvement services, uh, contractors, people that put in all new windows or remodel your bathroom or your kitchen. Um, they still come out to your house and so on and do a pitch, um, but nobody does it on the scale with, with commodity goods anymore um, with little you know, it just occurred to me where we see that now, where that model has sort of transferred. And even now at this point, as you and I sit here talking in 2021, I believe this model is fading now. Home Shopping Network. Yes, Home Shopping they, Network. It basically took the sales pitch that the guys yes. go into your house and do, including product demonstration. Yes. And they put it on TV. It on TV. And, they, and they sort of centralized it. And now, yeah. and even now, that itself is sort of fading, going by the the way of the dodo. So it's so the whole concept of direct selling is really, really going the the, the way of the dodo in many, many ways. It went away quite a long time. The the, the model of, of of millions or thousands of, of people taking on this as an occupation, full time or part time, is a fantasy. It, it's a a kind of uh, sentimental fantasy uh, but they get away with it they've been getting away with it and talking about a million or four hundred thousand americans selling weight loss powder yeah four hundred thousand people have a market i mean there's there wouldn't be enough customers and 
that question is just passed right over and, and so on. And how would they keep their customer from all those other competitive salespeople? So, right. Well, you know, look, yes. let's name it because I want people to know it's Ponzi-nomics. Yes. So I, I had to invent, in a way, I had to invent a word um, to communicate what I found multi-level marketing to be. To be. Now, Ponzi-nomics, the term I can, created, could actually, is a belief system. And, and uh, it could and does cover more than multi-level marketing. But multi-level marketing is sort of the avant-garde of it. it. It most perfectly and directly represents this belief system. And that's what I came to, as I said, it is this central question, what is it? Right. I had to set aside all the things I know that it's not, that's been uh, demonstrated by many other people besides me not direct selling, not income opportunity, not even really a business because almost no one, there's people get into it under mis idea, you know, uh, misconceptions. So they have been misled when they get into it. Well, that can't be a business. If you're misled, then you're not voluntarily entering into a contract. And then second, there really is not an exchange of value. People expect income they expect an opportunity to sell product. They don't get that. That's right. So, okay, so not a business, not direct selling. What is it? Eventually I concluded it's a belief. It's a belief system that is attached to a pyramid scheme proposition. And so it doesn't qualify as a business opportunity, but it is a financial proposition, but it's not just an ordinary one-off financial proposition. It's a, it's a belief system, a proposition in, is part of a much larger belief system. The belief system had two aspects to it. One is the Ponzi, that is the robbing Peter to pay Paul, is presented as viable, doable, sustainable. And then from that, because it offers this utopian uh, opportunity, income, a financial, it is then presented even on a wider scale as a kind of answer to life's questions, most basic questions, livelihood, fulfillment, success. Uh, even sociality. And that's right, community, uh, personal development, uh, realizing your full potential. And, and, and on, from there, these things are presented as almost mystical. It becomes almost a, a mysterious secret society that you can join that not only uplifts you and, and allows you to develop fully as a person, but it even provides you this magnificent income opportunity. Well, who, who wouldn't want that, right? So, uh, and this is going on on a grand scale millions and millions of people are uh, exposed to this proselytizing. Um, so it is like the fastest growing religion in the country. If you want to think well, of it. Well, you know, I'm, I'm so glad that you, just, that you just summarized it that way because I wanted to present my audience with an analogy or comparison here to think with because it's so, 
it, it can be difficult for people to 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 break away from those first principles or first assumptions, right? And yes. and I want to offer my audience a, an analogy that will make total sense, uh, I think, and that is. We talk about Scientology. We talk about cults like the Church of Scientology. And the Church of Scientology is is not a church any more than MLMs are a business. Yes. And that's actually the, the level of deception that we're talking about. And it's and and as you've mentioned here, it's not accidental. This is very, very intent driven. Well, it's embedded in the language. If you describe Scientology with the term the Church of Scientology. That's right. And then tell me it's not a church. That's <laughs> right? I'm confused. That's Didn't right. You just call it a church. Exactly. And it, and it, and really it comes down to is it a religion? And yeah. that is the, you know, that is a question I will I will have no problem debating academics about. And I know that they have valid points to make if you believe that L. Ron Hubbard was sincere. And if you believe that the Church of Scientology is operating as a religious organization first to forward a religious movement, then you could believe that the Church of Scientology is a valid church or a valid religion. But the fact of the matter is that it's wordplay. And we all kind of, when you get into the depths of Scientology, you learn pretty quickly how that actually works and how it is what we call religious cloaking. It's a facade. It's it's the using the language to give themselves an air of legitimacy and credibility that they actually don't deserve and never earned. And I believe this is a perfectly accurate analogy for any multi-level marketing company being considered a quote-unquote business. Let's uh, let's just go a little deeper with that, comparing multi-level marketing with with Scientology or a religion. Uh, so. Let's stay with it, comparing it to a, a religion or a religious movement or a religious-like movement of some kind. Sure. Um, one of the few people who ever actually did look at multi-level marketing objectively in a scholarly way um, was a Yale law professor named Arthur Leff, who I quote quite extensively in the book. Arthur Leff was most famous for uh, an analysis of contract, contract laws and the philosophy of contracts. And uh, he's, he's quite well known for uh, an essay that he wrote about, is there such a thing as a, a law kind of based on nature or do we make up law? Is there any kind of a way to determine a law that would be intrinsic or uh, a moral law? So he's best known for that, but he did work in the 70s with the Federal Trade Commission as a consultant. And this was before the famous Amway decision. So back when the Federal Trade Commission looked at these things, and this was also before the term multi-level marketing had been invented by multi-level marketing companies. Um, it was called pyramid selling. And that oh, was, I was the about term. to ask you. Is that it was called pyramid selling before that? Pyramid selling. That's what. That's not what the schemes called themselves. They called themselves. Well, they actually didn't have one term they used. They called themselves sales companies, direct selling companies, uh, and they claimed that everybody in it was selling, and that this was very much still living off the disguise of the old direct selling world. That obsolete, extinct, they were still living on that. 
Um, but regulators in the 70s and late 60s who began to take notice of this, they called them pyramid selling. That was the term. That was the common term used. And they were being prosecuted and states were writing laws to ban them as inherently fraudulent. During so that time- about, We're talking about the 60s and 70s now. That's right. The late 60s is when uh, the government first began looking at this model. Um, it had been operating for more than 15 years already and hundreds of thousands of people had been enrolled. Um, but this was when Amway first began its growth. Amway started around 1960, 61. And so the first laws started being written in the late 60s, the most famous anti-MLM law or anti-endless chain, that was the other term used, endless chain, the infinite chain, <clears throat> was California's law. Uh, and that was passed in 1968. So there were a few right around that time. So from multi-level marketing was born in 1945 and, and gained, but it didn't really take off into a big way until the 60s. And by 68, the government was starting to prosecute them. Okay. So during this time up to the mid seventies, um, Arthur Leff, did this work, Dr. Leff did this work for the, for the um, Federal Trade Commission. And he was writing a book, a most unusual book about the world of selling, what actually is going on in a sale. And he realized that, you know, there are earlier cultures where virtually nothing was sold. People obtained it, but there really was no marketing side to it. And people had currencies, but there still was very little sales going on. You bought because you absolutely needed it for survival. You had very little other cash to be buying anything with. So there really was not a world of selling. Today, we are immersed in sales and marketing and advertising, PR. And so he actually says, but what actually is occurring here? What is the messaging that is going on for something to be declared a sale? In the course of this, he looked at various cons and he determined that to understand selling, you had to understand con games because essentially the, plays, the players were the same, the, the customer, the salesman versus the con artist and the mark. They actually had the same challenges. They had to say, I have a proposition for you. I personally have access to an, an, an opportunity you can't get from anywhere else. I need you because I'm going to benefit from it. And, and this benefit that I'm going to offer you has to have some plausible reason. We're, we're, I'm going to offer you 10% discount, 20% or 80% discount. I have to be able to tell you, how can I do that? Where does that money come from that, that I was able to pass on to you in the way of this big savings? It has to come from somewhere. Salesmen can't say, I'm just doing this out of the goodness of my heart. Nobody will buy that. So he looked at multi-level marketing, which he considered the biggest con of the era of that period. Uh, of course, he's passed on now. And of course, it is multiple scale <laughs> bigger than it ever was back then. So he, he could never have imagined that, I think. But he did see it as a, a, a massive thing already 
and he classified it as a spectacle, a con that has to that is done on a vast scale that can be done over a long period of time and touch and con literally millions of people. And so he bumped into, of course, the people would say, well, what are you talking about? What's, what, is other, what else is such a thing? Well, of course he was referring to religious cons, mm. right? Mm. So this required him to, de to define, well, when is religion a con and when is it sincere and real? Because I, I, a, a con man can get in front of a large audience and tell them, give me your money and I'll make sure you go to heaven, right? Mm -hmm. And people do that all the time, right? They do. And it's showing the rise of televangelism. Yeah. And multi-level marketing is saying, give me your money and I'll take you to heaven here on earth. Success, fulfillment, happiness, community, you know, unlimited potential, unlimited income, enlightenment, and so on. It's the same con. So, but when is religion not a con? And ultimately, uh, what he determined was in the case of religion, there was an element of sincerity, uh, of belief on both sides, the preacher and the congregation. They might give their money. He might claim that if they gave money to the cause that it would aid them in getting uh, grace or uh, reach into some uh, level of blessedness or something like that. But that doesn't make it a con. They, you know, that's a mutual thing. And who can prove that it was wrong, right? You can't. But there are a couple of other manifestations of a con religion. Usually the preacher that is asking for the money is taking it all for himself or herself. There's one side of it. That's, what, that's they, the part I was gonna bring up. Yes, Norman. secondly, um, there's no check or balance on this preacher. They are kind of self-appointed and so on. There's you know an element that says, is this really a religion? Because there's gotta be some mutuality here of, of uh, uh, responsibility between the, the preacher and congregation. And then of course, third uh, element is um, they, the preacher is not doing what he says. He's, he's, he's not following the moral precepts. He's often violating that. He's spending money uh, you know, profligately. He's engaging in sexual affairs after you know, admonishing people against that and so on. He's engaged in, in shady business deals, self-dealing and so on. That would be the elements that would, you know, determine. But what he said is, but notice how close they are. You see, in the case of a religion, you know, it's kind of a value call here of when it when it crosses over into a into a spectacle con rather than a sincere. Multi-level marketing is kind of the same thing. You know, how can a guy up on the stage telling you about positive thinking, uh, realizing your success, uh, making more of your life? When does that turn over into a con. Uh, uh, a well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you one thing that I, we might mention here that, that's coming to mind right away is the fact that um, was it Wisconsin or Illinois that did the state audit? Right. It right. Wisconsin. And yeah. Wisconsin. Yeah. They did a state yeah. audit from the AG, state AG office yeah. on the top sellers of the Amway, the people who get on stage and talk about 
how they're successful, winning, affluent, best life ever. And and wasn't it the case that they were all broke? <laughs> they were all broke, yes. Less than 1% made, made any money at all. Yeah. And then even that 1% after they showed the, the tax returns of those people, they were losing money too after their expenses were, were uh, accounted for. Uh, yeah, I think that the dividing line is pretty is pretty obvious in the case of multi. You can be as positive, you can preach positive thinking, confidence building, sharing, community, all good, until you say, and here's the plan for realizing all of these ideals. Now that plan is something that can be examined and determined, is it a real thing? And there is abundant <laughs> evidence now that at the, in the multi-level marketing, while they talk these wonderful positive ideals, it all gets funneled eventually into a contract for a particular business scheme, so-called business. That scheme is demonstrably unfair and deceptive. So that's where it's obvious. It's uh, as somebody else has said to me, you can tell people about angels you can believe that there are angels. You can argue that there are angels. Fine. Nobody can disprove that. But if I bring you a feather from an angel and actually try to sell it to you, now I've crossed into the area of a fraud. So that's kind of what multi-level marketing does. It, it brings you the feather of the angel and says, here, pay, pay this. And you turn out, of course, the feather came from a bird, not an angel. So um, that's that's really what they they've sold you something that is not a business, that's not an income opportunity, it's not direct selling. It is in fact an endless chain scheme. It's a pyramid selling scheme. There is buy sell transactions going on, but that doesn't make it a business. Exactly. So, Especially yeah. when the fact is that you know when you do an audit of this or you do a financial a real run the numbers kind of analysis and you have done that i have now done that i've you know I, you, we've spoken with economists and 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 you know ec economic analysis who who actually do understand how numbers work and they've broken this down for us and it's abundantly clear that there isn't a path there is no path to success it is not a matter of okay, there's just a bunch of wimps who aren't willing to work hard. And us few who are willing to work hard, and we're the ones who are going to, you know, visualize, we're going to see that profit, we're going to, that's going to happen for us. You learn in doing a deep dive into this and really seeing the mechanics of how this stuff works uh, uh, across the, the domain. This isn't a matter of just Amway. This is Herbalife. This is Amway. This is this is Tupperware. This is every single one of these models will lose you everything. And it is ab and it is so hard to get that across to people because they see the yachts and the planes, you know, the G6s and the and the stages and the lights and they go, "Well, all, somebody's paying for all this. Money must be somewhere here." And, and there is a lot of money involved. And there is, is a lot of money, exactly. How does this how does this facade get created and 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 how are how are people convinced to buy into this so so heavily? 
you know, one of the one of the terrible revelations that occurred uh, to some people in multi-level marketing uh, that was chronicled in books, first-person books, uh, sort of memoir books about their experience. Stephen Butterfield's book, um, Ruth Carter's book, Eric Scheibler's book, and so on. There have been a few others. Um, what they discovered was that some of the people on the stage who were um, showing, displaying their wealth, bragging about their wealth, the vacation their family had gone on, their luxury car they're driving and so on, uh, from the business they, they said, um, turned out, it turned out that that money that they did have didn't even come from selling the product. It came from running the motivation event in other words, people paid $100 to come to an event to hear about how great the income opportunity is in multi-level marketing. The guy on the stage said, I'm living proof of it. Here's how I live. Only to discover that the real money came from the $100 they had paid to hear that message, not from the business. Exactly. So it's that, it's that old thing, you know, about uh, sending out the, the ad, I'll show you how to make, uh, you know, a thousand dollars and you, you send, send me a dollar and I'll tell you how to do it. And you send in the dollar and you get a note back that says, run an ad in which you promise people you show them how to make a thousand dollars. Right. That's right. right. Send me. It's, what is it? I want to highlight a point here, and we might, we might re, we might revisit this list as we go through this episode here. I'm not trying to, you know, check all the boxes, but it occurs to me from what we've talked about so far that, like, comparisons can and absolutely should be made between the the characteristics or the modeling that's been done of how thought reform. Or in other words, brainwashing, if you want to go, you know, vulgar, but thought reform, um, you know, mental manipulation, these are things and there are tools for it. Language is one of them. Um, emotion is another one, you know, logical fallacies. There are a, a whole array of ways that you go about doing this. But the fact that you're doing it as an organization, as an individual indicates that there is that there is something undo going on, something wrong, something not above the boards. And the, and one of those points that we've brought up so far that I wanted to highlight is, is what's called mystical manipulation. This is one of the eight points from Robert Lifton's model of thought reform. And it's the, it's the manipulation of experiences that appears spontaneous, but is in fact planned and orchestrated by the group or its leaders to demonstrate in this case, some exceptional talent or insight that sets the leader or group apart from the rest of humanity and allows a reinterpretation of events so that this group is all and everybody else doesn't really get it, doesn't really understand, doesn't really, isn't really in on the, the, the secret knowledge, right? Which is another factor, the, 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 the sacred science of it. So I wanted to point that up um, because it's an important aspect of this and of course relates to why I'm interested in this stuff. Yes, um, and, and I spent uh, quite a bit of time in the book on Ponzinomics. Uh, Ponzinomics is a belief system. Again, it's, it's a belief system. Uh, integral to the belief system is the, the belief, uh, the, the delusional belief 
that a Ponzi scheme or a pyramid, an endless chain, I recruit five, they recruit 25 and so on, is workable. And, uh, and that it's a, an opening and it, it, it creates a possibility for a, a unique and extraordinary income stream. The income stream then makes your life extraordinary. You'll now be free, of, free from work, free with time, you'll be able to do amazing things that you had only dreamed of before. Your life will be transformed. So that's all included in this. So um, of course, this is a con, of course. I'll start with the premise that the Ponzi pyramid structure is completely unsustainable. But the question is, why would they, uh, why would they need such an extensive thought reform process that you see? in all multi-level marketing companies. And well, the answer, part of the answer is um, they're looking to take your money deceptively. They can't allow critical thinking, due diligence, comparative shopping and so on, the normal things that you do in business, can't allow that. Second thing is it's a long con. This isn't about flim flamming you to buy something one time you don't need, it's overpriced, it's not what the sales guy is telling you and you get burned. This is a long con. They're looking to get money from you, possibly everything you've got, your home, equity, your credit line, borrow from your family members, okay? So they are looking to soak you completely if possible. And second thing is they want to dominate your time. They need free labor from you. So these are pretty big goals, dangerous goals. If you describe that in political terms, you would be talking about an authoritarian, dominating dictatorship, wanting to enslave people, have them work for nothing, they want all their, their whole lives uh, and they want everything. The people will give everything to the cause and so on. That's right. Well, that's the level we're speaking about. That is the level we're speaking. We're talking about a totalistic system that is authoritarian in nature, whose goal is actually to take from you your, your capacity for critical thinking. And they want to take really all your time and all your labor. They want your soul. And if you've met people, and I have met many of them who have been taken body and soul by an MLM company, and they will literally commit financial suicide. They will mortgage their homes. They will quit their jobs. They will divorce their spouse. They will abandon family and friends, all in search because the leaders have told them this is the way. And this is what's gonna get them ultimate happiness, freedom and wealth and respect and so on. Part of it um, includes what you mentioned, the, the mystification. You can't do this with mundane, measurable things. You have to mystify the whole process. You have to claim you have esoteric knowledge. The guy on the stage, unlike some cults, I would say, I, I'll go out on to say that all cults, most cults, when we think of cults, one cult um, is 
different from the other cult and disconnected from the other cult. And each one has its guru exalted supreme leader. But the two leaders have really nothing to do with each other. We can kind of see common characteristics, but they operate independently of one another. Multi-level marketing franchised the cult leader role. It's a scripted role so that there can be hundreds of these people on the stage, each one drawing in and using these techniques and tools of thought reform in which that person, male or female, is exalted, mystified as the keeper of great secret of having special power that a mere human being like you don't have, um, and then has a plan for you uh, to share in this greatness or this enlightenment, uh, this beneficence that they are offering you, right? It's a scripted role. It's a scripted role in multi-level mark. So rather than there being just, you know, an L. Ron Hubbard who is seemingly presented as a kind of unique individual or a Jim Jones, um, Recently, there was a television series on a, a, a multi-level marketing scheme called um, Nexium, spelled N-X-I-V-M. So they used Roman numerals to, again, make it seem mystical. The guy that was running it has now been given a life sentence for sexual abuse. They called him us engaging in sexual slavery. And, and trafficking, sex trafficking. Um, and he had taken on this role of God-like figure to this group. But it turns out that Keith Raniere was a veteran multi-level marketing schemer. Right. That's Where right. did he start? He started in Amway. <laughs> and he was and so, I guess you could say good or bad at it. That he, that he got banned from ever doing it. He got into, he created his own multi-level marketing scheme called Consumer Byline, B-U-Y. And it was kind of so-called group buying thing. But of course, you're really just selling memberships into this club. I was prosecuted, it was stopped, he was banned. But then he kind of, as often happens, the, the enforcement of this becomes forgotten, weakened. Yep. And he went and started a new MLM which became known as Nexium, and its product was not discount buying membership. It was enlightenment itself. He sold plan for you to achieve, and know from your expertise in Scientology, this will sound very familiar. Mm -hmm. He sold a multi-staged program of advancing yourself to uh, a superhuman enlightenment stage of life. That's right. In which you could read people's minds, you could do all kinds of amazing things, achieve levels of fulfillment. It was actually the closest thing I've ever seen to what Scientology would look like if you remove the religious component. Right. That, right. He that, sold it as MLM. Yeah. See, that's how close we're looking at here. He that's sold right. it as a business. It was a profit-making business, and that's how he defended himself. So when somebody complained and said, I think this is a fraud, I'm going to warn people about this, 
this is a recruitment scheme and it's quite abusive and, and it's not what they say. He immediately sued them for interfering with his contracts, with his business. He took on the posture because that was the identity as all multi-level marketing companies are that he had a legitimate business and these people were tortuously interfering with his business and harming his brand and so on. So yes, he did, he did exactly the same thing. He, people didn't become heretics. Uh, they weren't shunned that way. They were considered as uh, they became uh, unfair competitors now, people who are trying to subvert and harm his company. And it was called a company. Right. So, um, but the point is, I think I'm trying to make here, his role while in that series that was on HBO, I believe, mm -hmm. um, presented Keith Raniere, that's his name, who was the leader of this Nexium scheme, sex slave scheme as it's depicted. He is presented as somebody with seemingly un unusual special powers over people. But actually, he was a stereotype. Yeah. I've seen scores of guys like this. They yep. are running a script. And this is the unique, and I think one of the more important elements of multi -law. If we conclude that a cult, and I think this is rather obvious uh, to most people once they see it, uh, you know, a cult is a bad thing. It's a dangerous thing. It, you, it, theoretically, there could be a good cult, um, but by definition in a free society, you know, people have many options. The idea of a cult is to shrink your options to where you have no options, you, you are enslaved. And you can't think your way out of it because they have enforced upon you a thought reform process that makes getting out or seeing an option or critically examining this impossible. Right. They've used special language on you. They've dominated your time. They've introduced special vocabulary, a kind of Orwellian vocabulary that kind of prevents you from thinking. They've mystified the whole thing into something. They've exalted this leader to where he is uh, indomitable. He's in, you can't challenge him. He's above you. That's right. And so on. So it's, not, it, it's no longer a person. It's a symbol. It's a symbol. Yeah. That's right. That's right. right. So um, if, if people understood, and, uh, and many people do understand, that such an organization, a network, or is, is not a good thing for an individual to get caught up in, then I think that if people could grasp the way that multi-level marketing is a cult, it, it would go a long way toward people being forewarned and forearmed to and not fall into it, regardless of the business disguise, the utopian income promises, and all the other devices of trickery used to lure you in initially. But if you had heard or had read that this thing is a cult, at least possibly a cult, even if the question of it being a cult was would occur to you, 
people would be far more diligent in the way they examined this thing. So exactly. I spent a lot of time in the book and I also wanted to demystify the cult because when people say it's a cult, well, they look at it and they say, it can't be a cult. They dress just like me, <laughs> right? That's right. They're talking about business and profits and sales and products. Uh, they're talking about self-improvement, um, potential, human potential. Um, and aren't those all good things? Don't we all believe in them? Entrepreneurship? Who's against that? Right? So it doesn't look like a cult. It's enormous, too. Most cults, you assume, are kind of marginal, marginal small operations. They're exotic, dress funny, talk funny have some kind of weird, funny leader, maybe. So what right. multi-level marketing isn't fit any of it. And then finally, it's a business. So cult business are mutually exclusive and they really are. A business is well, by definition yeah, well, a measurable they can, thing. They can be, I, I, will, I, I will debate that a little bit because Enron, but, um, but in principle, you are not wrong. Well, Enron was Enron you're speaking about. Yeah, the that, that, just how Enron was run. Yeah, it was very culty at the top. Cultish inside it. Yeah, very um, much so. But yes, um, but it wasn't, as it turns out, it was cultish because it was presenting itself as the most innovative and genius company in the world. Yep. And it was getting, being, being given these awards by Inc. Magazine all, as most innovative. <laughs> it, it, was all, it was all based on accounting fraud. It was so, one of the uh, most amazingly pulled off cons I have ever seen in the last yeah. 50 years. But it was it was an accounting fraud, basically, that that gave it this capacity, this seemingly um, uh, um, supernatural financial po uh, power. It, it could expand. It could create capital and profit that nobody else seemed to be able to do. Well, it wasn't doing it. So when I say a business, I, I guess I should have said a real business. Fair enough. Fair okay. enough. And I didn't mean to push back too hard on that. Yeah. Right. You're yeah. not wrong at all. You know, but, but by, by definition, a business is a measurable thing and it is also a sector of life. You know, you, you have business, you have work, and then you get out at the end of the day, you go back home. I know businesses can intrude on that, but no business normally, no real business claims there's no there's no dividing line at all except multi-level marketing they will tell well, you yeah let's, let's talk about that for a second there's actually two aspects of this i'd like to highlight one the one you just mentioned and earlier you mentioned a repeating pattern you said something very important in this and this is where we make the differentiation between a one-shot con job a you know you you got taken to the cleaners because you got you know a one-time screwed yes. you right but this is different because as you mentioned this is a long con what we also refer to this as in terms of from in the from a psychological perspective is coercive control coercive control and, yeah and part of the definition of coercive control and this is actually written into law in the uk for example in the um uk um uh security act there is a uh, provision about and this is for domestic situations and honor-based violence or um you know intimate partner violence is where this is 
applied legally, but conceptually, it applies to MLMs in the same way as it applies in domestic violence situations. And that is a repeating pattern over time of isolation, manipulation, and control. And those are your three basic elements of coercive control. So coercive control is mainly in the literature. It's mainly used to refer to domestic violence situations, but it actually applies across domains and, and very much applies to this MLM situation, right? So we can talk about coercive control and not be misusing the terminology when we talk about it in MLMs or Scientology or these long con type situations. And the interesting thing about this is the, the reason I'm, I'm, I'm talking about or bringing it up and am encouraged about it is because the law is finally recognizing a, a, a repeating pattern is actually something where you can't prosecute an individual circumstance where a husband does something screwy to his wife or a wife does something really messed up to her husband, but it's just a one-off. But when you can show a repeating pattern, now you have intentional activity. Now it's not just an accident or a spontaneous mistake because anybody yes. can do that. Anybody in any domestic situation can screw up. But if you can show and document a continuing pattern of this, now it's a whole different game. And I, and, and, and I think this is an important aspect of this that I wanted to highlight. So I would like to get you know, what, your input on that because I think that's a key to this. You know, one of the very first books that was ever written uh, about multi-level marketing, although it wasn't about the whole system, it was only about one company. Um, it, it, it used this uh, term that it's presented as the American dream, but it actually became a nightmare. Yep. And the nightmare, of course, isn't just that he lost money. That isn't really it at all. It's, it's that he fell under this spell he, he was, he lost control of his life. Um, he was dominated, he was deceived, and it changed basically his entire life. It, he lost track of family, friends. He abandoned his, the work that he had been doing that he loved. And uh, his values began to change. He became far more commercially oriented um, the work intruded into every other area of his life. Eventually, it was 24-7. So he sort of lost interests or opportunity to explore other interests, including his own family, right? He, he was coercively controlled. That's the nightmare. The nightmare is that you've become enslaved. You've, you've lost your freedom. And, and it was done without a gun, Nobody forced physically, and yet it, it did occur. And it wasn't just him, it was thousands of people. And this was done through the use, as all such schemes are, language, ritual, um, a, a specialized method of persuasion and time, of con, uh, repetition of things, uh, isolation, getting you away from other people that might bring a different point of view to you. Right. And then intruding uh, very, and well, uh, intruding in an inappropriate way into affairs of your life that really have nothing to do 
none of their business. And this is something that is one way this is done in multi-level marketing. When you come in, it's presented as sales, products, and so on. But when you get into it just a little bit, the first um, questions that will be presented, the first discussion, the first interaction between you and the company won't be, let us tell you how this business works as you would in a normal company. Here's our product, here's our business model, here's what we would, the job description we're talking to you about, you know, here's our vision for the company where we're gonna be, no. They start asking you, what do you want out of life? What is your most treasured dreams? What are you, what are, what are the dreams you've actually set aside, you've become, you've decided maybe you can never achieve them? What are those, the intimate dreams, the, the dreams that are really locked away in you, that you, your aspirations, your, your deepest aspirations, they try to pull this out of you, a kind of confession. When you confess that to them. Bing, 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 bing. We're just lighting up the board on the lift and eight points here. <laughs> yes. And that's, that's one of the, right. the first interactions. And to some people, that's the one that turns them off. You know, these are the these are people that are kind of prepared and maybe not so vulnerable to this. They might say right away, well, that's not why I'm here to divulge to you my deepest law. That's none of your business. I don't know why you're, I'm out of here, right? Yep. yep. But most people um, they know have kind of ventured into this out of a sense of longing. And so they know that already, you know, that's sort of the filtration process, uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, the initial scripted uh, allurement or invitation, solicitation is kind of has that built into it. So they feel they can intrude this way and, and get you to engage. And many people will give it right up. Oh my God, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm a mailman, but what I really wanted to be was a, you know, a travel person or I wanted to learn another language or uh, what I'd hoped to do was found a school or something. I mean, people have, we all have aspirations. We may or may not realize them in our lives. They may come out in other ways, you know, due to circumstances. But we all have them. Well, that's that's for that's for damn sure. And I, I couldn't help but just sit here thinking and laughing to myself, trying to imagine a job interview that would go that way, where you come in, present your CV or your resume, and you're all ready to, you know, get talk about your job performance and your past things and what you're prepared to do for this company and and asking questions and instead they start asking you about your personal hopes and dreams and aspirations and and how to, and and uh and whether you want to be connected more closely with your family and friends and 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 all. i mean it would just be it would just be such a bizarre job interview right in a normal in job but i will tell you uh the the roots of this chris and i said in the book there and, and, for, and to myself, because this was my founding premise, multi-level marketing is an American phenomenon created in America. Uh, it has exported, is now global, but it was invented here in a particular time, period of time, out from ordinary people. These were not strange people, really. The two, uh, the three characters that kind of interplayed with, interacted with each other to create this thing. 
uh, a guy with a little tiny failing vitamin company in Southern California, and then two other middle-aged men, one a pop psychologist who was not doing well, and the other a seasoned door-to-door uh, -door sales manager selling cemetery plots. These, these were the characters. So out of their life experience and their worldview was invented this thing called multi-level marketing. And the one dominant character in there was the sales guy. And this is a sales guy who had been a salesman in the 30s or even earlier. And he had been subjected to the psychology of selling back when selling was a more specialized and marginal field of work. Very few people were actually in sales. Sales exploded after the war in marketing, PR, advertising. Prior to that, being a salesman was a kind of odd thing to do and never a respectable thing to do in particular. Yeah. It, the sales guy was presented as a kind of slippery or tragic figure. And it has never been depicted very positively, even in literature. I mean, our, our, our earliest is a story of selling is, is probably the death of a salesman, Henry Miller's death of a salesman. That's right. And, and that's certainly not a sympathetic character, Willie Loman. The other one is- I found your breakdown of this in your book to be absolutely fascinating. It really did give some historical perspective to me that changed my entire view of how I look at that as an industry or an mm -hmm. occupation and it and society. It was it was actually, you, you wrote quite well about that whole history. It was really quite quite good. Yeah, in that world, especially back when selling was a a, a small, uh, disciplined, marginal area of work, a kind of an, on the edge of, of respectability to call somebody looks like a salesman, not a good thing to say, mm -hmm. talks like a salesman, not a good thing to say. So uh, has a sales personality, that used to be uh, not a good thing. That meant he's a manipulator, uh, insincere and so on. But in that world, there was this psychology that was taught to the pr prospects that was totalistic. They didn't just teach you how to sell. They taught you that selling is the ultimate and most basic element of human uh, interaction. And that being a salesman is, is a, a kind of missionary task. And that it unlocks that in sales, you understand human nature more than anybody else. Everybody else is a kind of a mark. You have superior knowledge and we're gonna teach it to you. You can get people to do things for you. You can get them to buy things. You can get them to sell things for you. We're gonna teach you the powers of persuasion, domination, control, it's all legal. And why would I wanna know that? Because it's a kind of higher status. So this idea of a totalistic, business-oriented psychology did exist. It doesn't exist in jobs, but it did exist particularly back when selling was this sort of marginal. These were the foot soldiers of capitalism. They had to be indoctrinated with this belief that selling was uh, a good thing, a natural thing, and that people who did it were the smart guys, even though the world kept calling you kind of 
you know, the jerks of the world. You know, they didn't like you. They didn't respect you. But that's well, their problem. It, it was its own little in-group, you know. It was its own little in-group. And in that group, there is there were books, and I have them, and I've read them, and they they look like religious texts almost. They are homilies. They are taught. They are presented with moral authority about the goodness of selling, the necessity that it's the important. It's the it's the bedrock of uh, of our free economy, and so on. And you're the soldier in this. You're the marine, and and so on. So. Multi-level marketing drew on this and was able to take that kind of intrusive, totalistic way of thinking and then present it as a way of life for everybody. And I also mentioned that they didn't, they weren't the vanguard of that. The vanguard of that was really Dale Carnegie. The Dale Carnegie. I was hoping course. you'd go there. Yeah, I was gonna yeah. ask about this. And that's where these guys met. This is where multi-level marketing, the, the originators of it met in a Dale Carnegie course. That's very meaningful because he was the person that was saying, you know how the salespeople work? Well, that's how you're gonna uh, survive in the modern economy. And of course, this was written in the middle of the depression and people were out of work, hungry and, and searching. And he's saying that the answer is by becoming a kind of entrepreneur, a salesperson to get other people to do what you want. That's how you're gonna survive. How do you do that? You have to be positive. You, have, you can't walk around with a scowl, you smile. What do you smile about? Think of something to smile about. Laugh to yourself and so on. He instructs them and then tries to tell them that this is actually quite normal and natural <laughs> to affect emotions, to, uh, to manipulate people and so on. Sort of Don't the original. Sort of the original idea of fake it till you make it. The original idea of fake it till you make it was a real thing. It came out of the sales world. And, uh, and yes, that's exactly, that's exactly right. That was, we talk about it now as a kind of almost pathetic way of living, you know, that you're always kind of on the make uh, and waiting for it to produce the results that you are told that uh, acting this way will eventually bring good things back to you. Yep. But that is exactly what the salesperson was trained to do, you know, to think positively, present to the, to the world a positive, happy face, even though they're broke and they've had 10 rejections. The 11th person they call on, they're glad handing, they're smiling. And so you had to train yourself to do this, right? And the only way the companies could train you was to teach it to you as a form of psychology, as a way of life. You couldn't just teach it as like you would a carpenter, you know, on, with the tools of the trade with, that you can put down and walk back and live your life any way you want. Right. Sales, sales training carried over into the rest of your life. It was the one thing, the one trade you couldn't put aside. Well, you know, it, it, that's actually all the way forward to Glengarry Glen Ross, where we see Alec Baldwin, you know, always be selling, right? Always. You are always on the job. I mean, this is not history we're talking about, the old ideas that, that, that nobody thinks about anymore. This is all the way up to now. And, yes. and, the, and the real harm that Dale Carnegie um, caused 
was to write a popular book about this, where he yes. took this and he disseminated it and told everybody. Popular. Yes, this is millions of people. Yeah. How to Win Friends and Influence People yep. was the book, which yep. then became a course. And the course and also often involved public speaking and so on, but it was mainly an indoctrination program to take ordinary people uh, introverted people, people of every stripe, and frame them into becoming sales type of person. That's right. And, and therefore, if you weren't like that, you became, you know, a discarded person. You weren't willing to be successful. So, uh, and also, your success depended on a personality type, on uh, on a on a personal presentation rather than on character. Exactly. And that's why. Uh, yeah, that's right. why the historian that I referred to said this was the era when we move <clears throat> from character to personality. Yes, and this yeah. is, and, and I think that this has a lot of relevance across many domains all the way to now. This is, again, this is not ancient history. This is a hundred years ago that all of this is starting, we're talking about. But right. these are the kind of events and these are the people who shaped so much of the current attitudes of Americans in ways that most Americans aren't even aware. And I find this endlessly fascinating to trace the genus of these things and, and figure out where they came from. And, and Carnegie is, it was absolutely front and center on this. Uh, and, and, and that's also why when you enter into a multi-level marketing event, it all seems so familiar in a way. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I mean, nothing's alien. They're not talking about flying saucers. They're not talking about, um, what's that term, engrams. Yeah, that's right, you know? that's right. There's nothing really that you haven't heard your whole life. Exactly, which is, one of, which is one of the reasons, by the way, just to bring this back to Lifton's points, why their loaded language can be so manipulative is because they are taking words you think you already know. These aren't new words. This isn't an engram or a or a, a Hubbard Zenu thing. This is this is sales. This is marketing. This is you know multi level marketing. If you try to break down what the hell does that even mean, right. it doesn't really make any sense as a term. Which I never, which I myself had never even thought of until you pointed it out. And I went, oh my God, you're right. That term doesn't even mean anything. Yeah. So it's quite, um, it's quite insidious how this works because it is so closely aligned with concepts and words and ideas that we think we already understand. It's homegrown. Yeah. It's so homegrown. And... <clears throat> So it seems so familiar, you know, and that's what that is. And I think that is the word of, of insidious. It insinuates in into your life, yeah. you know, it permeates and uh, and and it can draw you in and it feels like, well, I don't I can't really nail down what's wrong with this, you know, because everything's positive and, and it's presented as legal. It's a business income. I'm not doing so great right now anyway. Um, maybe this is the thing. And uh, it also fits into this whole American dream uh, concept too. You know, the American dream is not a collective dream. It's not a dream that we as a people will move forward. It's that me, I will have a breakthrough and I will succeed. It's always an individualistic thing. 
So when the scheme comes along, you start thinking, maybe this is my chance. You know, the American dream says there is a chance, it's out there, um, that nobody will be left behind. The opportunity is, is always there. And, but well, you haven't found it yet. But now along comes multi-level and you think, well, maybe, the, maybe this is it. And so that's all familiar. And as I say, uh, it's all familiar un until the, the business proposition is actually presented, which comes very quickly. The business proposition is sold without scrutiny, without even knowledge of how it actually works. The endless chain part of it has been diverted. You don't see the fatal flaw in that. The concept of being a salesperson in uh, when they are replicating your, your sales job by the thousands in your area, making it impossible for you to sell because the market will be saturated with salespeople, that too is put off aside to you. So you've bought into something that is presented in fantasy visionary terms, but the specifics have sort of been obscured to you. But once the, once the specifics are revealed, the whole thing collapses. It makes no sense at all. Exactly. But that's the whole idea is to prevent that from happening for as long as possible. Well, exactly. That's the retention angle. And, when, and I want to talk about some of those techniques that they're using for that. But first, I'd like to go to the beginning where people, who, who is it? You know, what is the demographic? What is the group of people who are going to fall for this, who are, who are going to be susceptible to this kind of manipulation? Um, is it stupid people? Is it desperate people? Like, what are we, what category of people, how do we describe them? Yeah, this is a question I'm asked all the time. What's mm. the typical MLM victim mm -hmm. or adherent? Mm. Um, and <clears throat> uh, so I've been looking at this for a, a long, long time now, quite a few years. And um, I concluded quite a long time ago, there is no such thing. Um, there you go. <laughs> same with me and cults. <laughs> go ahead, please explain. Cults, yeah, exactly. The same right. is the very same. Um, of course, in a, the cult is, is, is always presented as something that only a certain kind of person would fall for. Mm -hmm. And even the person in the cult would say, I would never join a cult. You <laughs> <Right. laughs> must be talking about somebody else. It wouldn't be about me. That's right. So, yeah. So, but multi-level marketing uh, in particular, I, I think uh, people do, you know, can't, can't see this and they, they just, it, it is a blind spot. And so that is part of the, the mind control that has gone on to subvert you from looking at it critically. But once you do, you know, then the thing does begin, begin to fall apart. But actually I lost the thread of what your point was. Oh uh, no, we were going into the, into the, you know, what, what my next question of course is going to be because there isn't a personality type. Uh, yes, so the, yes, who is the stereotype or who's the classic? Yeah. yeah, there isn't one, it's, it's anybody. But um, there is some history to this. I mean, uh, you know, but it, it, in the end, what you see is that the message uh, more and more people um, 
it does. It it is offering a kind of. Of course, it's offering an income proposition. So you know, if you're ten years old, then well, it won't be aimed at children. There are products and schemes aimed at children. This isn't one of them. Gaming and something. No, this is an adult thing, um, for sure. It originally was kind of aimed at uh, small town people, mm. rural areas. That was the kind of the mainstay. Uh, Multi-level marketing started. You know, the two guys that really exploded it in Amway were from Michigan. It was a kind of a white person's thing uh, originally. In fact, I had somebody tell me recently they thought multi-level marketing was a white person's thing. But of course, in the whole world, the vast majority of people in multi-level marketing are not white. Mm -hmm. Exactly. <laughs> it would be every other color except white. There are plenty of white people in it, but you know, there's there's no there's no ethnic orientation to this whatsoever. Correct. And, um, uh, but there is kind of a pattern. It did kind of start with mostly men. It did kind of start with smaller town, rural. Uh, you could lay over some sociological uh, economic factors, uh, downsizing and the, the, the evisceration of small towns, factories went away. The blue collar people were the first ones to really get hit by our modern economy and sort of began to be left behind. So the appeal of this sales scheme would have been particular for them. But very quickly, by the 80s, it was already, and even in the 70s, moving up the scale to the white collar as, as a, a flattening of management and offshoring and things like they started feeling the insecurity and seeing it. I've seen it in upper, I've seen it with financial planners, lawyers, medical doctors. It exported itself. We, thought, we think of it as kind of built on the American dream and the American narrative. It went straight into Canada, Australia and the UK and then Europe. And the big prize was China. Got into China by the late 90s. It's uh, at least a third which is amazing, of the which is yeah. amazing because that really is the holy grail of cons because Scientology has never succeeded at getting into China and they have tried. Lots, well, you know, Scientology probably uh, this is maybe a little bit of an aside, but multi-level marketing was stopped dead in its tracks in 1998 in China. They outlawed it, banned it, stopped all direct selling. And <clears throat> There were riots and there was a tremendous uh, turmoil over this, but the government saw it as a superstition, a sect, a cult. And it wasn't the, uh, it wasn't the side of the Chinese government that was enforcing uh, uh, laws against fraud or consumer loss. It wasn't an economic concern at all. Mm -hmm. It was from the security services. They saw it as a threat to the narrative of Chinese communism. So they saw it as a superstitious sect, a dangerous sect, a cult movement. And uh, that's probably why they never let Scientology get a foothold, because it was, in their view, clearly a sect or a cult movement, a belief system, and so on. Multi-level marketing um, began in, in the United States, it is always, its disguise was business. But from the prism of looking at it when it entered China, 
they looked at and saw these huge gatherings, the ecstatic uh, cheering, the guru leader up on the stage. And they said, that's not business. Business is factories, you know, making, you know, plastic things and electronic, that's business. What in the heck is this? It looked to them as it really is. <laughs> right. <laughs> they saw it. They saw it's, it straight away. It's amazing to me and kind of sad um, in a way. I understand the human nature aspect of this and the conflicting views about it, but I have to comment on the fact that it is weird that it's the authoritarian governments almost uniformly that will just kick cults right out of their countries right away. Yes. Russia, China, of course, are the two biggest examples of this. They hate Scientology. They, they hate Jehovah's Witnesses. They've, they've thrown them in prison in Russia. They have banned the practices. And, they, and the reason for it is, um, at a fundamental level, I believe, the, the, the basic, basic reason is um, because it's a threat to the centralized power of the competition. It's competition, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yes. Can't, and I think that's what the, the party making mm -hmm. citizens this happy. <laughs> you know? That's right. That's right. And I think what happened in, in China, um, I, I had some contact with Chinese uh, government through um, some third party consulting companies, which I have since learned were actually part of the government, but it's always hard to know mm. in China. But I did have some direct work with them. I also uh, had some contact with uh, a university uh, in China about my book. But um, I think what occurred there was that Amway and the multi-level marketing people convinced the government um, that this will not be a threat to your rule. In fact, we, we will never challenge your rule um, and um, we can help you because it keeps hope alive. That's really what it does in, in the US too. And I think that's why it was embraced in, by the government here is that at, even as the middle class began its descent in the early seventies, income stagnated, home ownership became either uh, declining overall or the amount of equity you had in a home got smaller and smaller. Um, Higher education became out of reach. Healthcare suddenly became unaffordable. All of these things began to happen starting in the 70s. So as many other people have said, the American dream appears to be tarnished or dying. Now that would normally create an opposition force among the public. But what if among the public who are losing in the larger economic story and picture we're being told, no, 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 opportunity is alive and well. It all works. You don't have to join a union. You don't have to join a political party. Don't get into it. It's called multi-level marketing. The American dream, it's the last best hope for the American dream. And, and it's the one place that you can go where you see people screaming about how great the American dream is. Everywhere else, people are a little a little wary of it these days because out of their life experience. That's right. That's right. I've certainly had that experience. Do you think it's purposeful on the part of the, of the government officials? Do you think they see it that clearly? Um, 
Yes, I do. It, instinctively, they do. I don't think it required a lot of calculation. This happened as I chronicle in the book mm -hmm. with the Amway Corporation, which again, the government had just shut down Amway's two big competitors and left Amway predominant in this new field and gave it legality. <clears throat> this was 1979? 79, yeah. And this is Federal Trade Commission. Federal Trade Commission. Okay, and what is, and let's actually clarify this for people, because I think most people out there, I sure as hell didn't, really understand what the Federal Trade Commission is and what it does. How do they enforce law and what, how, did it, how did it happen that, that Amway got the golden blessing from the FTC and has been hands off ever since? Yeah, so that's it's straight out politics. So let's just start with that. I mean, okay. so I don't have to. That it's it's traditional corrupt politics, the way politics kind of work. Okay. Uh, everywhere, I guess, but especially here, we have to remember up till seventy nine, the federal government, in the guise of the Federal Trade Commission, in in the office of the Federal Trade Commission, <clears throat> whose job was to enforce. Com competition to prevent monopolies, that was Federal Trade Commission, and also to oversee elements of deception and unfairness and harm, fraud, in other words, but fraud in the guise of business or in, in, the, in the face of business. Federal Trade Commission cannot put anybody in jail. Every case is a civil matter. Um, it is a, an, an office of the executive branch. It is not part of the judicial branch. They are not judges. And so it's a political office and it's a relatively small office too. Um, <clears throat> that office uh, determined that the business model of multi-level marketing, the endless chain was inherently deceptive and harmful. And they prosecuted the three biggest ones in existence at the time in the 70s, early 70s, Holiday Magic, Coscott, and Amway. The two, Coscott and Holiday Magic, were closed down. The third case against Amway was this identical case, endless chain, unsustainable, inherently unfair, inher inherently deceptive, saturation must follow, people will lose, not really direct selling, and so on. Recruitment, pyramid recruitment. And that case went on for several years, but in the end, the Federal Trade Commission uh, accepted a ruling by one judge who was not even a, an actual, was an administrative law judge. They did not have to accept this person's ruling and the ruling did not have to apply to any other company, but it son somehow became presented as almost scripture. It was the final word. Why? I argue in the book with straight up politics, Amway, was deeply embedded in the National Republican Party. The two founders, one was the finance chairman of the Republican Party, who also became the chief fundraiser for the Ronald Reagan campaign. And the other one was uh, the chairman of the, of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And so, who are their names? Uh, Jay Van Andel who, uh, and, and uh, Richard DeVos. Right. And, and if any of you are wondering if that is in some way, if Richard's in some way related to Betsy. Uh, Betsy is his daughter-in-law. Correct. Right? So his son, Rich, uh, 
often called Dick DeVos, uh, is the husband of Betsy DeVos. And so and, uh, just I just wanted to make that direct comparison there, because if in case anybody's wondering, oh, that was back in 79. That was a long time ago. Things have changed since then. Not at all. No, they were deeply involved in funding the campaign of political candidates, Ronald Reagan, Gerald Ford, who turned out to be very fortuitous for them because Gerald Ford was the, became the president when Richard Nixon resigned and Gerald Ford's district was where Amway was located. And they had been pouring money into his campaign. They funded his library when after his presidential period there. And then they became, so they had a tremendous impact. They were also at the Chamber of Commerce and uh, presenting this as American capitalism. So I would say that yes, it was a, a rather deliberate embrace that this thing is, is again, reaching out the little people, the, uh, the ordinary people are going to be taught these fundamental premises of a corporation, of business, of principles of business, they're going to be taught that the, the success path is an individual path, not a collective path with a union or social movement. It's an individual entrepreneurship. And they saw that as so powerfully delivered because they'd seen the rallies and they saw how people accepted this, that the, the reality of it, the losses, the loss rate, the impossibility of the actual business was simply disregarded. Remember, there is a premise, there is a, there is a tenet of advertising. If it sells, it's true. There, well, that, there you go. Because yeah. I want to comment on the fact that, you know, there's, there, it, it, it bears being said out loud that when you build a cult and a cult following and a cult belief system or dogma around a principle that every single American was raised to believe is true. Your work is three quarters of the way done already through the childhood indoctrination that all of your target public have experienced. And that indoctrination, of course, is the American dream, as we've been harping on here. Um, it, it bears repeating. This is not a small thing. Um, the American dream has lived large. It was something I was taught in high school as a, as, a, as formally we examined it for an entire semester. I mean, this is not something that just gets some lip service every now and again. Maybe with current generations, I don't know how people are taught now, but I know when I came up in the 80s, it was still very much alive, still very much being talked about as a cultural thing. It's a touchstone for us, and it's a yeah. deep deeply held belief of the American psyche that anybody can potentially make it given the right, you know, mix of things and, and especially given hard work on your part. It's all about your industriousness. And there's a certain degree of truth in that you will not succeed really, really greatly if you do not work your ass off. That is absolutely true, but it's no guarantee. You know, and as I mentioned uh, in earlier episodes, uh, earlier podcasts, Star Trek has proven to us, <laughs> if nowhere else, again, saying out loud, you can do everything right and still fail. And it's right. not your fault. Right. But the American dream mythology does not add all that into it. You know, 
It, it really is presented as it's up to you. And if you don't succeed, well, the, it's not because of the American dream. It's you. It has to right. be you. That's right. And so, you know, the, the loser, the loser status is built, built into this. And, uh, and also, as you know, as you say, in a theoretical general way, it's kind of true that there's an opportunity for everybody. In real life, it doesn't take into consideration abusive families, discrimination, the, the stigma of poverty, uh, disease, all kinds of, you know, sickness, all kinds of unfortunate things that people that don't, that create a, a grossly un unlevel field. The, the guy that grows up with a, a wealthy family and goes to Harvard is not competing on a level field with the kid that grows up in a small town and so on. Anyway, so the, the question you raised is, uh, to what degree is the myth, the, the, the lie, the big lie of multi-level marketing in, adopted by the government for its own purposes? Mm -hmm. And I, I show the pattern of, of payoffs you know, there is payoffs going on, undoubtedly. I mean, it, the, I have the numbers in there of how much the DeVos family has contributed, $200 million to finance for a political candidate, but also they have raised money through the Republican Party and through the Chamber of Commerce, where they have played such an important role. They also played an important role in the Chamber of Commerce in getting China into the World Trade Organization, which helped them in China for being allowed to operate over there. Right. <clears throat> this is all political manipulations. And I, I do think that uh, that accounts for a lot of it. it uh, remember, it really took off in the early years of the Reagan administration. And the Reagan administration was known for uh, hating the government, telling you that the market will provide Anybody who turns to the government, that's a false approach, uh, that business is the way. And uh, he, he cut out a lot of the safety net, the programs that were designed to help people with subsidies or whatever, food stamps, and he reduced a lot of those things. And it, he kept promoting this idea of individual responsibility, that the end of it, it's up to you, it's up to you. And that message was reinforced. Yeah. In and that, marketing. And, and that's how we get these social reinforcements, cultural reinforcements of MLM, so that it's yes. become this Im almost embedded into our culture now. And we're fighting. You know, you and I are, are, are really just a few of the very small number of voices who are saying, hey, hey. Guys, it's growing. The, the voice, the voice is getting louder, and I think uh, the, the the political cover for this will will begin to break down as a result of that. But uh, I want to add in to my definition of Ponzi-nomics, Chris, because I talked about the the delusion, uh, the belief system built on the delusion of of a pyramid scheme or a Ponzi as viable. Yeah. But there's a last sentence in my definition, which is in the very first part of the book that a belief system, a delusional belief system like this can only, wherever it, wherever it operates, it necessarily involves the collusion of government. Mm -hmm. and, and that's because without it, the inherent flaw in it would become more apparent. People would realize it. the voices of the critical voices would get a greater uh, listenership. You know, people would 
pay more attention, the facts would reveal it. But if it has the authority of government behind it, as you pointed out, it does. The Federal Trade Commission confirms that it affirms it's legitimate. The political parties by their affiliation, they have a 40 member caucus in Congress. But it all happened in 1982, I think. 79, Amway escapes a prosecution for being a pyramid fraud that if it would have been shut it down. 81, 80, 81, they escaped jail time. They were being arrest warrants for the two founders of Amway for tax evasion on taking product across the border into Canada. So Canada, and this was all documented in the press. Ronald Reagan is elected and then they concoct this idea of Reagan coming and speaking at an Amway meeting and Amway sort of uh, saying, yes, this is the way, Reaganomics and, the, and Amway are one in the same. They would mutually exalt each other. But some of the Reagan people were saying, you know, this, I'm not so sure about this. You just were prosecuted for fraud by the Federal Trade Commission. You just were prosecuted for tax evasion in Canada. So, um, do we really want Ronald Reagan speaking at a conference, a, a big meeting like this? So what they did is they rebranded a giant Amway rally in Atlanta as a, um, um, for the, it was going to be a rally for the spirit of, of capitalism, the spirit of entrepreneurship, free enterprise, a free enterprise uh, spectacle. And it would be sponsored not by Amway, but by the Chamber of Commerce. And Ronald Reagan will come and speak, which he did. Of course, who paid the bill for the whole thing? Amway. And who was in the audience? Amway. And Ronald Reagan is on the stage. Who filmed it and then sold the video to its members for $50, I think? Amway. So they were given the production rights. They had the members. So it was fused. The, the Reagan, Reaganomics, the trickle down, right, was fused with the multi-level marketing model. And so I do think it was a, a rather calculated mutual arrangement, a partnership that developed. I, I will add one other factor though too. Uh, if you're in the government and um, something like this comes along that is promising to enrich you, give you campaign funds, uh, promote you with, to a vast audience uh, with their phone system and their email, later emails, as they did do for, for Reagan and Bush too, Amway and other MLMs too. So you get a lot of money and you get support. <clears throat> and what's the downside? Downside is if you criticize it, they take that away from you. But um, if you just turn your head and look the other way and let them go on and don't get involved in these questions of unfairness, harm, pyramid scheme, loss, deception, just look the other way. What happens to you? Well, not much, really nothing, because the voices of those victims is silent. They have been convinced it's all their fault. 
you know, they're shamed into silence. Um, they don't think to en masse uh, besiege the Federal Trade Commission or the Department of Justice that this is a gigantic fraud, I've been cheated and, and you need to know and you need to do something on behalf of the Pope. No, it doesn't happen. So if you're a regulator, there's, there's really not much upside to enforcing the law here. Right, because you're just gonna get, get socially and professionally ostracized in your world as a government official because these guys wield real power because they have real money. I mean, when you're talking about campaign contributions of $200 million, that's what's reported. That's what they're willing to be transparent about. That's right. You, uh, the influence is yeah, larger than that. You got exactly. You got to think with the bigger picture. And that's just in the United States. Let's not talk about how they've contributed to campaign contributions, politicians, et cetera, uh, regulators in other countries all over the world. I mean, Thailand, isn't, Th isn't this blowing up in Thailand? Thailand, but, uh, you know, there have been prosecutions for bribery. Herbalife just paid a huge fine for bribery, and there was a whole bribery ring in, in China. What? It's all been in the public. Well, they call it bribery over there, mm -hmm. and here we call it campaign contributions. Bingo. And, so, uh, and I don't want, you know, I love my government. I don't want to be cynical about my country, but I got to be factual. And, and the fact of the matter is that people are corrupt, and they're going to do corrupt stuff. And then, then that happens here, and it happens all the time. And it is to our all, all of our mutual detriment that we let this go on and don't. When, in the book, I think we've become so uh, inured to it. It's yep. so pervasive. And the language has all changed. We call it soft money, soft yep. money, right? Or we call it, uh, you know, influencing and lobbying yep. and uh having, you know, um, uh, pressure, even that is considered, and everybody's just an interest group. So, you know, if the corporations are there promoting their interests, well, what's wrong with that? Don't the retired people, don't the school teachers do that? Uh, don't the nursing homes? Everybody's just an interest group. So we have actually lost, I think, the capacity, many of us, for even recognizing what is corruption anymore. Yeah. So in the book, I went back and tried to use the language and the, the view, the worldview of people in the beginning of the 1900s, the period of good government, reformed government, muckraking journalism, and they used real terms. They called it bribery, boodling, graft, right? Yep. They called it treason. You know, they called it treason. Uh, the treason of the Senate was one of the most famous books. In fact, it was that book that caused Theodore Roosevelt to attack them as muckrakers. That's where the term came from, and it was directed at that man who wrote that book. So um, I used that. I said, we got to go back to, to see the, the, how this actually works, to, to understand it, because like you said, we love our government. We don't want to, to think of the government as inherently corrupt. But if we don't, if we're not willing to see how the money can be used to buy protection for some really destructive things yes. to go on in the name of business and be presented as legitimate and good and so on, then we can't grasp really for even for ourselves what's happening here. 
So I felt, and, and the, the feedback I've gotten from people about the book, one of the things I have heard more consistently is this was kind of the disillusioning part of the book. They had the hardest time. Yep. They didn't reject it. They got it because the facts are all there. And uh, it's no hyperbole involved here. It's just laying them out. But when you see the picture, it's, it is disillusioning to see how influence can be purchased and law enforcement can be thwarted um, yeah. with just money and propaganda. That's you know. right. But, and, and, and powerful money, lots of money, and powerful propaganda. Let's let's be clear. That's right. This is Sophisticated. Not some, that's this right. Is not some out of the gar garage operation going on. That's right. This is right. this is as pro as it can get. Yeah. yeah. That's the office. Uh, yeah. The office on on K Street for the DSA. Uh, the the PR departments, the law firms that these companies employ, biggest and most powerful law firms. The amount of money they will put into legal defenses into promotions, studies, all kinds of things that they do to protect themselves or promote themselves uh, is, is, is formidable. Yeah, right? it works right up there. And as I said, everybody knows about big pharma. They know about the arms industry, their lobby. They know about the banks. <clears throat> you know, we know about these various lobbies, but most people don't know there's a pyramid lobby. Exactly. And when you talk about a 40 person caucus at the congressional level, that's the kind of thing that really sets my hackles off because uh, and all of the above. I mean, it's just it, it is so embedded now. So now that we've kind of painted this really dark picture and you're not wrong, reading that part of the book, I had the exact same phenomenon. It was very disillusioning. But. You know, ice water dips don't have to be bad things. I mean, reality and truth are 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 valuable. It is it is important for us to, to grasp. <laughs> yes, I hope so. I'm not. You know, I, I, it's like yeah, you have this emotional impact, but so what? The truth is the truth. Let's embrace it. Let's do something with it. Yes. I don't want to run away from the truth, and I would rather live with an uncomfortable truth than a pleasing lie. So, I mean, that's at the top of my Facebook page. So it must be true. So. <laughs> Well, that's that's a, yes, that's a way of looking at the world, a way of living. And I certainly this book comes out of that same point of view yeah. that the truth will make you free and a, a, a lie can please you. And, and maybe uh, for a little while, I, I think this uh, explosion we just had in Washington on January 6th, thousands of people invading the Capitol building, destroying property and talking about and actually killing, killing a policeman and so on based on a lie that's right it's based on a lie the the lot the, the the demonstrably untrue statement that the election was massively fraudulent fixed and so on that a, that an election a voting machine company was involved and then there was a conspiracy in these particular state court after court investigation after show didn't happen wasn't there not even nothing like it was like that yet that lie uh, took on a life of its own. And if it were true, if it were true, you can certainly understand the rage it would excite. Yes. Imagine if we had an election and the duly elected person who claims to have won by a landslide suddenly shows up as having lost, and it was all done by subterfuge 
fixed uh, uh, voting machine company and ins uh, evil characters inside the government. Well, yeah, you can see why people would feel I got to do something, That's but right. it was a lie. So a lie, a big lie, and that was a big lie. Yeah. That kind of lie is what we're talking about here with multi-level marketing. A big lie that we have this livelihood opportunity for millions of people and that you just have to join these companies and get out there and recruit and pay and recruit your friends that this could be the answer to your livelihood, to your life's hopes. This is the fulfillment of the American dream. That is a serious lie. And to think that that lie, the reality is 99% of the people every year are losing money, quitting, losing, being replaced, lost time, ruined families and so on. And then money from that is poured back into the government to protect it from law enforcement yeah, that's, that's not good. This is bad for the public exposed to it, bad for the government that is corrupted. And the truth is the only antidote that I can see for these things. And the truth is an, a very uncomfortable truth. To, to get to the truth, you've got to accept the facts and uh, set aside the false hope of the American dream story that multi-level marketing is the answer to the American dream, not get rid of the American dream, but get rid of this as a, as a pathway to it, demonstrably false. It's an entrapping, dead-end, harmful path to take. It's not a path, it's not business, it's not direct selling. And you have to give that up, and then you have to go over and account for, and there has to be a reckoning for, well, how has it gone on all these years and nothing done about it. And it has to be factored in too. Right. And then the truth just has to be told. And the truth will have its own power. It doesn't require millions of dollars. It, and it is gaining. It is gaining strength. Well, I wanted to ask you about that because we see exposés even up to the level of John Oliver. You know, a couple of years ago, does a whole MLM breakdown and shows graphically and beautifully. It was a wonderful episode where he, where he broke it all down and showed it was all bullshit. What, uh, do you see more of that happening? Do you think that that is helping to educate the public? Unquestionably. I mean, I, I'll use a little barometer. Don't have a study to point to, don't have data. I think I have a pretty reliable barometer because I'm called by journalists. Um, I just spent time with uh, BBC this, this week. I've talked with journalists uh, a couple of weeks back in the uh, Virgin Islands. Um, I've talked to journalists in, in Germany. So, I mean, I think it, the, the, the calls from journalists, the attitude of the journalists, the information that journalists bring to me and their, their point of view when they begin the interview or talk to me, the questions, how they frame the questions, mm -hmm. the barometer of uh, public current uh, where the level of thinking and understanding is. And I have seen a tremendous change over the last, I would say, um, as recent as five, six years, let's say maybe going back to uh, around 2012, let's put it at eight years. Mm -hmm. It has greatly intensified uh, in the last five years. 
Now, uh, the word cult routinely is brought up. Before it was like, whoa, 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 we, we're not going there. We're not talking about cult. Um, and loss rates, um, I was always having to argue this and go through these elaborate explanations of how it is the model produces these loss rates. But they came to the interview with the view well, that can't, it just can't be true. Can't be millions of people wouldn't keep joining something that would produce losses like that. That's just not now the concept of propaganda, brainwashing, government protection, fear of regulators of the political consequences routinely as accepted uh, by, by them. The loss rates, I don't have to argue it. They start from that premise. They know it now. Good. So um, that, I, I think it's, uh, you mentioned the John Oliver show and we have other uh, things like the, the series that was on Showtime with um, um, Kirsten Dunst uh, uh, on Becoming a God in Central Florida was a series on Showtime. Um, the series on uh, Nexium, the vow that's on HBO. Um, and, and it keeps, it's starting to fit into more uh, comedy shows and discussions and it's gradually being accepted as a reality, a phenomenon that is a folly, that is a, a delusion, that is rampant right now, but nobody is, is, is pretending that it is real anymore. It's just, it's being presented as a kind of uh, virus that has entered the economy. Well, I think that that is, and, and I'll say from my own Scientology experience with this too, because in 1980, Scientology was unassailable. That's 1990, right. it was unassailable. In 2000, it was less so. And by 2010, people really got that it was a dangerous cult. It wasn't just some screwy little operation that Tom Cruise kind of was involved in. And it was basically the same as Kabbalah or something. It, it, it definitely changed. But it took hundreds thousands of articles, hundreds of thousands of people becoming aware of it, talking about it. And, and for me, the, the, the we made it point was when it got into comedy. Yeah. Was when it became the punchline. When people are that familiar with it that they can laugh at a punchline to a generalized audience of people randomly selected at a, at a comedy club or something. Now you know, okay, this is in the population now. This is a cultural thing. We've, we've now passed that. I don't think we're there with MLMs yet, but I think we're getting there. I think that we are moving in that direction. And so your book, your efforts for years now have clearly had positive effects on this. You've been talking to media for years about this, and, and I think exactly what you just said is, is probably about the best metric we're going to have for about the best metric. Yeah. yeah. And um, it may eventually show up in recruitment declines. Uh, there's some hints that that's happening, but I don't quite see that yet. Yeah. And, yeah. <clears throat> but I do see it in the tenor of conversation and, and the questioning. And as you said, in comedy and skits and in uh, sitcoms or even in uh, things that are not really funny, but it's accepted now. It's it's begun to to get it that this thing is is, is a scam. It's a folly. It's a an absurdity. 
and and yet and those who fall for just haven't figured this out yet you know and the information and that's that's how it's gotten there there is some rancor you know you see on chat rooms where the the people who have seen it are sort of attacking the people that are still in it it's sort of a reverse of the uh, throwing out the loser and vilifying the loser. Yeah. Now the losers yeah. are out there vilifying the people who are still in it. Like, right. what are you doing? You know, have, can't you see the light? I mean, wake up, you know. Exactly. So the same kind of derision is now, you know, uh, flowing the other direction. Um, but I guess that's part of it too. You know. I, no, that's that's the thing, because because you're also because a lot of what you see, you know, this is one of the reasons why cult is becoming a more known thing now is because the Internet has has enabled people, has empowered people like me. To speak up, to speak out, to give us it's given us a platform we never would have had otherwise, unless we could somehow convince a reporter to listen to us. Yeah. And now with YouTube and with blogs and with podcasts, we have the ability to broadcast it ourselves. And there's catharsis in that for victims, for trauma survivors and former members of these groups, especially MLMs, and because they live so much on social media now. And um, and there is the exposure of the of the abuses and stuff. At, at a, it's a ground level sort of thing that at, over time matters and has an effect on the culture itself uh, if enough people step up. So, you know, beyond, beyond Scientology and beyond multi-level marketing is sort of where you're going with your studies, Yeah, uh, which is the generic phenomenon of coercive control. What's the term used? Coercive, coercive control. Co coercive control. Yeah. And that is the, maybe the frontier, I think is a bit of the frontier and we, we're seeing it now on such a scale where you have millions of people uh, deluded into violent behavior, nihilism, hatred. Um, and you go, what, what, what is going on here? What, what are they so upset that they would be willing to carry guns, threaten people, and take on this violent uh, a mode of being, you know? Um, what is going on? Well, it's it's what we don't see is what they've been subjected to. Right. Right. And but at least the phenomenon is in people's faces now, you know. Right. And 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 I think that is the, the next frontier. We've all seen it also in small cults. We've seen it also in family situations, as you mentioned, you know, yep. where um, spousal abuse, child abuse and so on, which is a kind of you know, distilled down to this little household, these same patterns and exactly. same methods of coercive control, sometimes involving physical abuse, but not always. Nope. It's not right. absolutely necessary that you physically restrain somebody or harm them or even threaten them physically. So um, that is kind of the next frontier. And that's where I felt that, you know, for people to understand multi-level marketing, ultimately you can't just see it as kind of a bad business or a business or uh, something that crosses some legal line um, or a culty, cult-like thing. You really have to see it as the belief system it is, understand that how sophisticated this is, the propaganda machine, the political influence buying, the tools of persuasion that are used and the history behind this 
And that's really what that book, the book is all about. And that's what I, I hope brings for people that wanna, students, researchers, and others that wanna understand what is this thing going on here? This, this provides the, the broadest and best documented because it's very thoroughly documented too. Uh, I was very impressed. I was very impressed um, uh, with all the citations and references and footnotes and things that you had in there. It was a real education um, to read your book. It distilled so much information down into one easy to consume and, uh, e and, and easy to understand uh, source. And I, and I really, really appreciated you putting all the effort into it that you did. Thank you. Yeah, that was my goal. Yeah, it was awesome. So I guess we'll move toward wrapping up by telling people where do they find this, this amazing book of yours? Uh, Amazon.com. That's where it is. And paperback and um, ebook for Kindle. Uh, an audio book is in the works. That's coming. Good. But, uh, yes, uh, for, for immediately right now. Uh, it's Kindle or paperback. Paperback's about 350 pages, I think, or 380, something like that, all together. Cool. And um, it goes fast, by the way, guys. It's not dense yeah. academic prose. No, it's not. It's definitely not academic prose. And uh, but I, as I said, it is quite well documented. It's a, a kind of a journalistic treatment of this. Um, and it and the subject matter is multi-level marketing. It's not. Uh, it's not a story of some poor family that got caught up in it or anything. It's, it's the story is, what is this thing, multi-level marketing, this phenomenon? Where did it come from? How did it get invented? What were the stuff of our culture and our beliefs that came into it, you know, made it up, the, the threads that were woven together to make this thing up? And then how did it germinate? And then how did it survive legally? Uh, how did it spread and what actually, how does it persuade and control and dominate after inflicting losses on this, which brings you into the whole realm of understanding cults. So yeah, it takes you through several domains of life, ordinary life, day-to-day -day work life, selling life, marketing life, political life, and belief, the world of beliefs and um, what constitutes belief. So I'm, I'm hopeful that it will uh, help people and become a source for students and for schools and um, journalists and of course ordinary people like you know, that are uh, affected by this solicited uh, or some member of their family or friends yeah, are. Awesome. Awesome. All right, folks. Well, you, you owe it to yourself. Check it out. Pick it up. Get it. Read it. And, uh, and yeah, get that audio book out because I can tell you from my own experience in self-publishing that that'll definitely get you a lot more audience. It's a, it's a, it is a big deal. I did not realize as a, as my, as when I was my first time author work, how big of a deal it was to get that audio book out. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm happy to hear that because this is an area I'm just exploring, you know, I've, I've found company to help me do it and, you know, I, so it's going to happen, but I, right. I'm, I'm learning about it. So yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, it that. was a big, it was a big deal to this day. I I will sell more units of audiobooks than than the uh, print on demand. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay, that's great. That's what I needed to hear to move forward. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Awesome, go. man. Thanks. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you very much for taking the time. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for taking the interest and the time with me on this. The questions are, I, I love the questions. It, it gives me a chance to, instead of just telling the story about multi-level marketing, but to see it in the bigger picture and connect it to other things in our culture, that's that's what I particularly feel needs to happen so it can be really properly put in context. Exactly. Me too. In fact, I'll probably call this episode the bigger picture of MLM because yeah. I really want people to get the the, the bigger picture. So yeah. cool. Yeah. All right, folks. Uh, any questions, comments, feedback, I suppose, leave it in the comments section or at sensiblyspeaking.com. And if you are, of course, enjoying my podcast, enjoying my channel, consider supporting me through Patreon. Links all below. And if you only want to do a one-off, of course, you can use PayPal. And the link to that is also in the description section to this video. Thank you very much for your viewership, guys. Thanks for inviting us into your home and listening to us go on at a mad rate about this. I hope that the lessons you take away from this are useful. And uh, per please do spread them around. Because if you found something useful and educational and informative and entertaining about this, maybe other people will too. All right, guys. See you next week. Bye-bye.